Thank you, EJ, and it's so good to be with all of you who are in this space, those who are in the sanctuary, those who are at home um, now or later worshiping with us. We're on our very final sermon in the book of Hebrews, and it's been a great study. If I could summarize what the book of Hebrews is about, and as a pastor, when we preach through a book of the Bible, this is our intention, that we believe that the original author wrote this book, a letter, to an audience for a specific spiritual purpose, and that same purpose extends to all of you today that the purpose of the book is to encourage those who are Christians but are discouraged, those who are uh, followers of Jesus Christ but are tempted to neglect their faith. And what is interesting about the book of Hebrews, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, this is what you must do. You must be a better version of who you are, but rather it is all about the idea that Christ is better, Jesus is better. That though you are a sinner, you were a sinner, you are a sinner, you will be a sinner, that no amount of self-effort, how much better you try to be more moral, no matter how much sacrificing you give, no matter how uh, wise a group of people you surround yourself with, that will never be enough but the omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God chose to come in the form of a man, and he gave himself, sacrificially suffered for the sake of an undeserving person like you and me. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, there are a bunch of imperatives, commands, directives. Uh, but let me give you a list of negative as well as positive directives written in the book of Hebrews. When he, a bunch of don'ts and do's. Don't drift away from what we have heard. Don't neglect such a great a salvation. Don't harden your hearts. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't hear and rebel. Don't fall away from the living God. Don't become dull of hearing. Don't forget the exhortations that addresses you as sons. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't become weary when reproved by him. Don't refuse him who is speaking. And on the other side, uh, do pay close attention to what you have heard. Do consider Jesus, hold fast your confession, draw near to the throne of grace, draw near to God, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, uh, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, run with endurance, look to Jesus, consider Jesus. If you notice, these are not list of uh, things to do to be a better version of who you are, but if you kind of look at the broad stroke of what the author is trying to say to those who are discouraged, it is this. Don't neglect Jesus, but rather look to Jesus. Don't um, drift away from the person of Jesus, but, steer, stay, uh, uh, but, but stay close to Jesus. You know, when I was in high school, for a year, I worked at a florist, and I was driving the van, delivering flowers. I would sometimes make uh, bouquets and things of that nature. Um, one of the things I discovered while I was working there is the idea of the blue carnation. I don't know if you realize this, but blue carnations are extraordinarily rare. 
Uh, and in fact, if you've ever received a, a bouquet of carnations and there were some blue ones in there, those blue carnations were probably unnatural, meaning they don't occur in nature, but they manufacture those blue carnations. And this is the way that we would manufacture blue carnations. We would take white carnations, put them in water, and put blue food dye into the water and allow the carnations to soak up the blue dye about 24 hours, a little bit more, so that it, it, it soaks up through the stem all the way to the top of the flowers, all the way to the edge of the petals, so that after a, a couple of days, you have a full-blown blue carnation. How do you get a blue carnation? You sit and soak in that blue, beautiful hue that you want to display. It is only in chapter 13 in which the author finally gets to some of the do's and don'ts of how to live the Christian life. And I believe uh, for the writer, if he tried to get the, his readers to live a certain way, they would be trying to manufacture that which is impossible for them, but rather he spent the first 12 chapter rather compelling them, telling them what you actually need to do is sit and soak the person of Jesus. And when you do that, when you do that long enough, deep enough, the person of Jesus will soak through your stem and bear beautiful fruit. And so today, through chapter 13, I'm going to talk about what uh, blue carnations look like, what life looks like when you sit and soak the person of Jesus. You will love comfortably, you will be content where it matters, you will submit to the church, and you will worship the crucified Christ. So turn your Bibles with me to, first, uh, to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll look at these four areas. First... What does blue carnation look like? If you're soaking in Jesus, you will love uncomfortably. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. If you read this particular two verses in the Greek, you'll know that uh, uh, brotherly love is Philadelphia. It's where we get the city. Uh, philos, which is love. Uh, Delphos, which is brother. Brotherly love. Uh, treat others in the church as if they are brothers or sisters of you. Verse 2, what we don't see in the English language, uh, uh, if you read, it, read in the Greek, you'll read that um, in verse 1, it's Philadelphia. In verse 2, it's philozenias, love of strangers. You might have heard the term xenophobia, the fear of strangers. Uh, so what this particular verse is saying is love your brothers. And also verse 3, verse 2, Love the aliens and strangers, and oftentimes we, in the New Testament, call it hospitality. I'm not quite sure why, but I think it's so much more than that. It's loving as brothers, those who are strangers, loving people who will, there's no return on investment in you loving them, but you choose to love them. Anyway, it goes on, verse 3, remember those who are in prison. Not simply remembering them. But as if you are in prison with them, you know, the most persecuted religious group in the world right now are actually Christians. 
remember them in their persecution, in their suffering. And there are those who are in prison because it doesn't limit them to just persecuted, innocent people, but those who are guilty actually remember them. Not only those who are in prison, but those who are mistreated, those who are victims of injustice. It's not just their problem, but treat it as if it is your problem. You also are in the body because they are people just like you and me. Later in verse 16, do not neglect to do good. And in the way that we don't neglect to do good is to share what you have. We are generous, and that is pleasing to God. You know, one of the things that researchers have discovered during these past two years of the pandemic, and this is often true in the midst of a crisis or in times of scarcity. During times of scarcity, people tend to become more selfish. And if you don't remember that time earlier on in the pandemic, if you don't think you were like that, remember all the toilet paper that you bought and hoarded? In times of scarcity, we try to be selfish. And this is the way in which um, and you and I may think that, you know, we're not being selfish. I'm being reasonable, logical. I'm being loving. These are two ways in which we become selfish. Some become selfish by demanding their rights. I have the right not to be vaccinated, not to wear masks if I don't want. It doesn't really matter um, medically what I feel or what they feel. Even if, it, if, even if medically it doesn't hurt me to wear a mask, I, I, it's my right not to wear a mask. It is a form of selfishness. And on the other hand, there's another way to be selfish. Well, I am nervous when I'm around unvaccinated, unboosted, unmasked people. And in fact, I don't like people in general. So I don't want to be around people during this moment in time. I want to re remove any kind of risk. So I'm going to uh, draw near to myself during moments of crisis, during times of scarcity, and I know that I am being over, uh, oversimplifying things, but when Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, don't neglect gathering together, because it is when you gather together, you encourage one another. During these past two years, how have you loved your neighbor? How have you loved your neighbor? Or have the excuses of the pandemic compel you to say, no, it's time for me to draw inward. You know, I so appreciate so many of you in this space right now. Those of you who help out with Neighbor's Pantry, second Saturday of the month when you come in the front parking lot and give groceries out to those who are um, in need of food. Those who serve every week um, for the kids or little kids ministry, for those who are at the youth and college retreat right now, I was asking someone, how is it going? They said oh, the staff is just, they're just tired, but they're loving it. I appreciate those of you who are cell group leaders who open up your home or, or uh, op uh, fire up your Zoom and try so hard to try to love those that are difficult to love. What does it look like when we soak ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ? What does the blue carnation look like? We love uncomfortably. We love that is 
uh, in a way that is unnatural. We love when it's easier not to love. Second way that the blue carnation shows itself is not only do we love uncomfortably, but we um, are content where it counts. We are content where it counts. There are two things, the two pursuits that verses four through six talks about. That if you are really sitting with Jesus, uh, this should be true of you. And these pursuits that are natural to other people shouldn't be true of you. Verse four, and, and these two pursuits, sex and marriage, uh, and money. Sex and money. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The author talks about sex in the positive and in the negative. God doesn't say that sex is a negative thing. Rather, God designed sex, or the euphemism here is the marriage bed. God designed sex to be an expression, an experience between uh, two people uh, physical intimacy between two people who are also emotionally and covenantally tied to one another. And the covenant of marriage should be held, it says, an honor among all people. I, and it's weird because times must have changed a lot because what I am about to say, it sounds so foreign when I say it right now, but listen to what I'm about to say. Sex should be reserved for marriage. It sounds so politically incorrect nowadays that it's not the kind of stuff that you hear on TV now. That sucks outside of the covenantal relationship robs and dishonors both parties um, and dishonors God. In fact, it says God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterate sex outside of marriage and sex just beyond marriage. It says God does not like that. The second pursuit that we get wrapped up with is the pursuit of money. Verse 5, keep, yourself, keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Like sex, the Bible doesn't say that money is evil. In fact, money is a tool, a resource that, that we can work hard at, uh, at gathering so that we can steward it for good. The problem isn't money, it is rather the love of money. It is the misuse of money. It is when we place money in a place that does not belong, that does not fulfill. First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The pursuit of sex outside of marriage brings condemnation. The love of money brings all sorts of spiritual destruction. And I know that living hope, a lot of you, if someone were to ask you, do you love money? And I, I, I think 90% of you say, well, I, I, I date money, but I don't love money. Well, I may like money, but money doesn't like me because it's always breaking up with me. I think that's what many of you would 
probably say, you know. Um, but let me ask you this question. Have you ever turned down a promotion, a career opportunity, a, um, a business opportunity that is high paying, higher paying, that will provide gr much greater financial security to you and your uh, future college-bound children, or uh, perhaps, um, you know, insurance uh, and, and another car, uh, uh, finally the ability to buy a home in Orange County? Have you ever made decisions like that because that path uh, will perhaps um, make um, you unable to keep Sabbath. And I know that some of what you, many of you do, you, you can't help it, and I'm not talking about that, but at least the ability to focus on the Lord once a week. Or because it will not allow you to develop a healthy small group community that you can build deep relationships with. And I would venture to say most people that I know, even Christians, although we say I don't love money, we rarely turn down a date that money proposes to us. If money says, can we go out for coffee and bagel, that sounded weird, but we say, sure. I don't see anything wrong with it, but slowly, Oftentimes, in these small yeses, we become more and more distant from the Lord. You know, the, the problem, um, yeah, the answer, oftentimes, it's not more money. Uh, it says that we ought to be, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The answer is not more money. The answer is contentment. Listen, if you cannot be content with what you already have, you will not be content with having a little more than what you already have. Does that make sense? The answer isn't, if I only had 100 more K or, or, or a few more uh, thousands of dollars every month, if I can only have that, I'll be content. If, you, if we cannot be content with what we already have, we will not be content with having a little more than what we already have. So how can we be content? How do we learn? Because it's so hard, it says, and uh, as we continue to verse Five and six, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have for because, and here's the reason or the way we can be content. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How can we be content? We need to remember what Jesus said to us, what God said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, um, the English translators took this particular sentence and, and made it really uh, understandable and smooth. I will never leave you or forsake you, okay? In the Greek, this is literally what it says word by word. Never not you will I leave, nor never not you will I forsake. Did you count the number of negatives? 
there are five negatives. The Lord is saying to you, those who are tempted with the love of money, who wanna, who wanna go steady with money, no, no, no. I will never, 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 never leave you. So be content. Uh, for those of you who understand theoretical math, let me ask you a question. We may think $100,000 is a lot of money, but what is infinity plus 100,000? What is the answer? Infinity, right? What is infinity minus 100,000? What is the answer? Still infinity. If you have God, it doesn't matter whether you have a little more or a little less. You have all of God, the infinite God, the measureless God. But if you have 100,000 but don't have infinity, it's like comparing infinity to nothing. You have nothing. You know, um, if you read the news lately, uh, two people's names came up, Bernie Madoff and Prince Andrew. I, I, I'm so sorry, I'm, I don't normally like to say people's names, but um, they're in the news because, you know, things that, that are associated with their names. But, you know, to be honest, when we read the news, uh, there's so much, so much going on, and we can probably conclu conclude that much of the world's suffering would be lessened if they really believed and they could understand the blue carnation to be content. If they can really let marriage be held in honor, and if they can keep their lives free from money, if they can um, honor a commandment number eight, you shall not commit adultery, or commandment number uh, eight, you shall not steal, or commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. Imagine a culture, a society where that becomes normative. Listen, I think the United States of America would be a much better place, even if the culture doesn't do it, I think America would be a much better place even if just the Christians believe what they say they believe. If Christians believe that marriage should be honored, that we can be content with what we have and we can be generous with what we have, then I think this nation would be a better place. The third blue carnation um, fruit, not only uh, do we love uncomfortably not only are we able to be content in the things that really matter, but we would submit to the church. We would submit to the church. Verse 7, remember your leaders. We're talking about church leaders who spoke to you the word of God, considered the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith you're supposed to consider what they're teaching you. So when, the, when we are preaching the scripture, you're supposed to consider, chew on, okay, is that really from the Bible? I understand how does that apply in my life? And let me be obedient to that. But not only that, it says, and this is what's kind of scary for us as leaders, uh, examine their life and consider, consider their life and imitate their faith. So 
So Pastor Steve is talking about this blue carnation idea when, you, when he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And if we do that, uh, we would love uncomfortably uh, that we would, we, would, um, we would be content with what we already are given to us, et cetera, et cetera. So do our leaders emulate that or exemplify that? Uh, do our leaders love Jesus? Do our leaders... Um, love their wives and their husbands? Uh, do they live as people who lo know, love, and worship Jesus? I know that, that no human being is supposed to be perfect, and I certainly am not. And those of you who know me better know that, um, that I, I, I could be difficult at times. Uh, no leader is supposed to be perfect, but leaders are supposed to be people who actually still are in the race. They understand it is an endurance race and they're continuing to strive in that way. And because they know they're flawed in verse 18, they say, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, so far we see, okay, leaders are supposed to be people we listen, uh, we um, uh, listen to their preaching and look at their life and maybe imitate them. We can accept most of that, but I think it's verse 17 that we would have a hard time with. It says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Uh, the Greek word for obey and submit means obey and submit. There's no magical way to rationalize out of that. The writer of Hebrews says to Christians that if we're sitting in blue water and if we soak ourselves at the feet of Jesus, that after a while, we will willingly choose to come under the authority of the church. Um, and the reason being is that there's a group of people, they're, they're leaders within the church, whose jobs are to care for your spiritual souls. Now, uh, and, and yeah, and they have to give an account for that. Now, um, this particular weekend of the year, uh, for many years, has been one of our uh, people's favorite weekends and the, it, it, the reason being, it's, it's the weekend where your youth age kids go on the retreat. And I, I know some of you, you drop your kids off, I'll miss you, I'll miss you, hooray, they're gone, that type of thing, right? Uh, I also know, especially those that are uh, dropping off their sixth graders, they go, oh my gosh, it's the first time you're going to be away from mom, are you going to be okay, uh, you know? For those of you who are dropping off their 12th graders, they go, oh, God, don't rob a bank on the way, okay? Um, but one of the things that you're trying to tell your sixth graders as well as a 12th grader is this, listen to your teacher. As you go up, listen to your teacher and listen to, um, to Irv, the youth director. And the reason you give that instruction to your child, uh, your kids, is because uh, they have been entrusted, they have been given the responsibility to watch over your child's souls, correct? 
They have a spiritual responsibility that's been given to them. You know they're not perfect. You know they're, they're messed up. You know that sometimes, uh, you know, you, like, uh, you cringe what they, on, uh, on the things that they post on social media. But as they go to the retreat, say, listen to them. And the reason you say that is this. Not only have they been given um, this responsibility to care for the souls of your child, but you tell your child uh, to listen to them because you know that your child is a sinner. You know more than anyone else in this whole wide world, mom and dad, that your child can be awful, right? Your child can be selfish, moody, secretive, lying. You've seen all of that. But you care for them you care for their soul. And so you say, this weekend, please listen to what they're saying. But listen, it's amazing that it makes so much sense to us that we tell our teenagers that they have to have people they submit to spiritually, but we think as adults that we're immune to that. That somehow we've become perfect, that our motives are always pure, our judgments are always right, that we don't need anyone to listen to. We can get counsel, we can get advice, but ultimately I'm going to do what I want to do. We would never say that I am required to submit or obey. Listen, those of you who are becoming members or those of you who are members, I don't know if you realize that's one of the things that you're agreeing to do is come under the authority of the church. That if, if at some point in time you are in sin, we would follow Matthew 18 and we will come to you in private and say, hey, I, I think cheating on your spouse is wrong. But I'm in love. That doesn't matter. Refuse to listen. We take two. Hey, we, we believe that you're, uh, you're in sin. Refuse to listen, etc. That when you become a member, you are saying, I will submit, obey uh, the church. And then you're, you're, you're signing the document, giving us permission to say to you, no, that's wrong. That God is not pleased with that. As an elder of this church, one of the many elders of this church, I will tell you this, one of the most difficult things that we do as an elder board is to exercise spiritual discipline, to have these extraordinarily difficult conversations. There have been times as an elder board, okay, oh, and we spend hours prayerfully um, talking to different people, who's, who's going to have this conversation I don't want to do it, you do it. No, I, I don't want them to hate me. Let them hate you. You're the pastor. I, um, by the way, I, uh, pastors are not immune to needing to obey spiritual authority. I, I remember a couple of decades ago, a pastor sought me out and said, hey, um, can we talk? And uh, we got to Denny's or something, we were talking, he said, I need to confess something to you, and, and I, I'm going to put myself under submission to your counsel. Before I even tell you what I have in mind, etc., what's going on, I'm going to tell you whatever you decide, I will do. Um, and this pastor was actually older than me, 
And then, um, but I knew why he was talking to me because he was a church planter and that church didn't have elders yet, meaning there wasn't a, a, a group of leaders that collaboratively made decisions. And so everyone was somewhat new following this pastor. And so he knew that he needed others who can speak into his life and not tell him what he wanted to hear or not give him um, uh, advice in which he can choose to accept or reject. So preemptively, he said, this is, I, I, this is a situation. And then he began to tell me what was going on. He told me, um, uh, uh, I, I believe, you know, what he believed in the way that he sinned. Does this disqualify me from ministry? Does, uh, what, do I need to disclose this publicly? What do I need to do, Steve? Uh, it, to be honest, it was a little bit intimidating for me as someone who was younger, as someone whom um, I respected this leader, uh, someone who hasn't been in ministry that long either myself. But to have this pastor submit himself uh, to spiritual correction um, without any conditions, listen, no one is immune. Just in the same way you tell your child, go listen to the teacher, we have to be willing to say, I have a group of people, I have a church that I'm willing to listen to. Sometimes they will tell me things I don't like, but that's precisely why we need them. And the blue carnation person, the person who sits at the feet of Jesus knows that I am a sinner. No amount of sacrifice, no amount of the law, no amount of good works is good enough. I still am, as, uh, I'm still broken in need of counsel. Uh, um, the fourth thing, we need to worship the crucified Christ. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever that we sit at the feet of Jesus and we drink of him, all that he stands for, that he is God, man who came and he somehow was able to die, suffer for the sake of our sins. And that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, uh, the problem with the church and Living Hope included, and every church that I know, the problem with churches is that oftentimes we get on these uh, fads or what we believe is relevant or what we believe is popular and draw the people, and we forget the crucified Jesus. A while ago, this was before the pandemic, a friend of mine whom I've known for a long time sent me an email saying, hey, Steve, what do you think about this sermon? And he sent me a link of a, a YouTube sermon of a church. And I wasn't quite sure if he was uh, sending me this link because um, he wanted me to critique it or to affirm it. But I have a relationship with this friend, so I listened to the thing the, the, from beginning to end. Uh, it was um, the pastor, the, the speaker um, was the leader, the pastor of a large church, and the talk, the sermon was very engaging, and the people clapped and applauded during the time, and uh, you can tell that he was well-received with this audience. At the same time, I, I was personally troubled 
There was almost no mention of biblical timeless principles or truths. It wasn't rooted in any text. Rather, he talked about, um, uh, about the history of the United States and the revolution from the British imperials and how there were uh, people, Christians, throughout the history of America who took up arms and the church played a central role in so much of that and how America uh, was somehow divinely special. And it was almost an implication that we need to be ready to take up arms. And maintain religious freedom and the value of the United States. Uh, it, it, it is that, that idea of American divine exceptionalism. I emailed my friend back who had a long history with uh, a mission field and I asked him, I, I told him these are the reasons I thought, uh, I found it interesting, fascinating, helpful, uh, effective. But I also said, simply, how would the people in that country receive this sermon? How would they respond to a lot of the things? And it, it, it was obvious what the answer is. And if it's, if, if it's not rooted in scripture, but simply our culture and what's popular, we eventually get in trouble. And we do that all the time. The seeker movement, um, oftentimes, which was popular uh, just a, a decade or two ago, uh, try to make music, the praise uh, time, more of a, a concert and uh, the messages, a talk, like a TED talk, which is akin to a self-help uh, motivational speech. Um, right now, the, the fad is to be is political activism. We take a cause which we believe is popular and somehow anti-institutional, and we tie the church to it as if that's what matters the most. And, and there may be a time and place for all of that, but... Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. When Paul the Apostle talks about what we need to tie ourselves to. When Paul the Apostle talks about that which may not be popular or well accepted. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Regardless of whether it's popular, whether it is uh, politically correct, whether it gathers people or not, whether some people laugh at us, we're going to preach and we're going to tie ourselves to a God who was crucified. And through him, verse 15, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God that is the fruit of lips and that acknowledge his name. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. Let me ask you a question. As you're standing at the feet of Jesus, as he soak the person of Jesus, do you still 
So you still think that, uh, that I need to keep the law a little bit more, that if I sacrifice a little more, that if I am a better version of who I am or, or because of the family that I grew up in, or rather, the, the more you sit at the feet of Jesus, do you more and more recognize as it come through their, your stems and out your, your heart and your mouths and your countenance that I am a sinner, that I am righteous only by the finished work of Jesus Christ, that I, because of that, that my life is different. Lord Jesus, when we're not sure, when we're on shaky grounds, when we're tired, may we sit and soak Jesus and you alone, may that justify us, may that change us, Lord, may that satisfy us and we thank you that you are never, 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 never away from us. Amen.